Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. My name is Jim Burns, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Right now, you're in the Bullyproof Classroom, and it's been a long time since I've done anything uh, in terms of uh, broadcasting a little bit using the the medium of uh, Internet radio and uh, and Blog Talk Radio in particular. Uh, I uh, really have developed a lot of great information over the course of my last show, which may have been, I don't know, may have been over a year or maybe two ago. Uh, And right now we are in the process of developing a whole lot of stuff, and some of it's already been developed. Uh, As you know, I'm the author uh, of the Bullyproof Classroom, the graduate course, and more recently that course just went up online, uh, and it can be taken by anyone by going to www.thertc.net, which is the the company that launches the um, the course for me, and and credit is awarded through two different colleges, one in uh, one in Pennsylvania, that's Gratz College, and the other one is, of course, right here in New Jersey, which is the College of New Jersey. Uh, teachers who went, who are in the field can take this course, and they can uh, receive three graduate credits. And In New Jersey, you have to have a certain amount of anti-bullying training uh, because of the law that was passed uh, in 2010 and went into effect in 2011, uh, which was the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights, which was as a result of a young man, Tyler Clemente, who uh, took his own life because of cyberbullying that that he experienced uh, while he was at Rutgers University. Um, the website that uh, you can go to uh, to gather information on any of this stuff is www.bullyproofclassroom.com. And if you look up to the right on the site, what you're going to find is a section where you can take a five-hour training course uh, in anti-bullying. That's going to be launched sometime in the summer. We're still putting together five hours, and those five hours will be taken from the Bullyproof Classroom, the graduate course. And there will be five five five-hour modules that you'll be able to take uh, our first module will be on how to strengthen the victim of bullying. 
to give him some more resiliency or her more resiliency as she deals with bullying either in the home, in the community, or in school. Uh, we also have on the site uh, the um, anti-bullying coffee house forum, which is a way for you to weigh in and have conversation uh, on the topic of bullying. And we'd love to hear some strategies, things that you're doing. Uh, we'd also like to hear if you're a teacher or if you're a parent, it doesn't matter. Uh, we also like to hear any experiences you may have had as a as a child or as an adult uh, because adult bullying takes place an awful lot in society today. Parents can get bullied by their kids. Parents can get bullied by their adults, can get bullied by their boss. Uh, it is a pervasive problem that is out there, and it needs a, a lot of attention. It really does. There's a tremendous amount of dysfunction that has occurred as a result of bullying in our culture and in society. Uh, tonight, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you'd like to call in and chat, uh, weigh in with any uh, information that you may have on bullying, uh, about teaching, about things that you're experiencing, please call in. Uh, we're at 646-595-4965. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. And uh, feel free to give us a call. We're going to be on the air for an hour. So we're going to be here till around 8.30. And um, we'd love to hear from you on this topic of bullying. Uh, the title of the show tonight is called Everybody Knows. And this is an article that you can read at bullyproofclassroom.com. Uh, I guess that would be your way of getting the transcript uh, for what we're going to chat about. And I have often said that some of the worst conversations that you have with people are the ones that you think you have. And it is so true. Uh, we are poor communicators. We are when it comes down to dealing with information that is difficult to communicate. We don't like to give people bad news. We certainly don't like to uh, tell people what we really think. We don't enjoy um, being in a position where we're going to feel confronted when we end up sharing bad news or sharing what we really think about any different topic. And sometimes we just agree because we don't want the confrontation, but we, we can walk away with a nagging feeling that we have in the center of our stomach because we really didn't voice and say what we wanted to say. And victims of bullying are very much like this. They don't have the capacity to communicate with the bully or with an adult. And oftentimes they'll, they will emotionally hide and they will they will live their life um, wishing that they had the nerve, the the guts, the courage to say what's really on their mind. And those of you who are therapists and so on know that holding stuff inside can produce a whole lot of anger, and that anger that gets turned inward can really create a lot of depression. 
and I think that's one of the reasons why we've we've seen a lot of suicides over the years. Uh, when it comes down to our kids, and when I say our kids, our school children, our own children, whatever the case may be, not having the capacity to communicate and make their requests known. Uh, and sometimes it's just as simple as saying to someone who is confronting them or giving them a hard time, just to stop and knock it off. Uh, I have uh, witnessed this with adults in faculty rooms uh, with years ago teachers would be talking about topics that were offensive to other people and they people would just walk out of the faculty room rather than saying, I'm really not happy with what's being said here. It could be off-color jokes. It could be um, someone's getting picked on. Uh, maybe someone is the brunt of a joke, whatever the case may be. Adults do this as well. Adults are as involved with this type of behavior as well. And we need to be aware of what we like and what we don't like, and we need to be willing to stand up for what we believe is right uh, as we as we take these steps uh, in this thing called life and and in terms of how we deal with other people. Healthy relationships have a certain amount of confrontation to them uh, because we have to speak our mind. We have to say what we believe, and we can't be... We can't be muzzled in the, into a position where we don't say what's on our mind. Uh, if you go to uh, bullyproofclassroom.com, you're going to find there an article that is called Everybody Knows. And Everybody Knows is basically 10 things that I believe people know, whether they be in education, uh, they're a parent, just an adult, could be a car mechanic, uh, could be anything. Uh, and they know them, but they are not spoken about. They are not addressed. They are things that people kind of kick under the rug. They may get spoken about to people who, when they speak to these people about it, they are of no consequence. In other words, they're not going to confront them on it. They just agree with everything that that's being said. The two people can have this conversation and it's it's no big deal. I'm talking about the adults who have a, who are stakeholders in schools and that means your superintendents, your principals, your vice principals, your teachers and parents as well because your children are going to some of these schools that have some of the difficulty that we that we have right now. And the beginning of the article just talks about, you know, the dysfunction and the deviance and the denial in terms of what we know that we don't talk about. And there are things that go on that are just so obvious. And there's, there's really an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and he's being ignored and I list 10 things that parents and educators and society, for that matter, know and for some reason won't discuss them or won't even admit to them. As a parent myself, 
I like to think that my kids are perfect. In other words, they're never going to do anything wrong. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. It's the furthest thing from the truth. My kids are like any other kid. They're going to lie. They're going to bend the truth. They're going to say things that they don't mean. They're going to have a sense of entitlement at times where they think that they deserve to get something. So kids have these different thoughts that they that they walk around with. And they have a tendency to act out. By the way, just as, a, as an aside, if you have a kid as a parent and you are reactive to that child on a continuous basis and you do no teaching in terms of the behavior that you want to see from him, but you react to everything that he does wrong, you are doing nothing more than producing a perfect, exquisite, wonderful liar because he will always poke around or she will always poke around in the dark to try and figure out exactly what you want to hear. And that's an important piece to know because our kids become adults and you don't want him or her to be what I call a yes man. You want them to have certain standards and principles that they live their life by that they stand up for and that they have the courage to stand up for as an adult. And you want them to be able to speak their mind whether it be to their boss, to their spouse, to whatever the case may be. And you want them to have the ability to have conversation that, that talks about what is truly on their mind. Because as they grow older and they get married and they, ha- and they end up with spouses, what will happen is they will stay bottled up they, and they will not share information because they're afraid of a reaction from their spouse. So our kids have to learn how to, to say things to other people as they, as they get older and create what's called a productive conflict. And, and, and we're going to talk about that in, in, the, in our discussion tonight. But the only thing that a productive conflict is, is it's the ability for two people to leave enough space in a conversation for a disagreement. And I've spoken about this before. Uh, and it, it comes from Dr. Robin Odegaard, uh, who shared this information with me on, on one of the shows that I was doing a while ago. Uh, and she talked about this. And I find and I found it very interesting, and I think it's something that we all need to be aware of. But everybody knows, everybody knows that disrespect is pervasive in society. Everybody knows this, and nobody wants to talk about it. And our kids grow up to become adults and who believe that they can say and do whatever they want. 
Those of you who are in education know what it's like to deal with a confrontational parent who believes that their kid is never wrong, who believes that when they come into a school, they should get whatever they want. We all talk about it. What are we going to do about it? How do you manage this type of problem that that we have? We complain about it. And this fear that we have ascends the ranks. And by that I mean it is top down. A superintendent of schools is a position. And oftentimes a the person who's in that position will hide behind the position. Follow me on that. You can't hide behind your position. Whether you are a principal, vice principal, supervisor, teacher even, you know, director, it doesn't matter. That's just your position. You are a person and you deserve respect and you can't use the position to get it. And superintendents and and principals have a tendency to hide behind those positions, and they are also in fear of irate parents. No one confronts. Everybody runs. And the schools truly are controlled by about 20% of the parents, and I say it in the article, with the biggest mouths and the most threatening attitudes and behavior. As we have 20%, we will always spend 80% of our time dealing with 20% of our kids. Eighty percent of our time will be spent on 20% of the kids. And 80% of our time will be spent on 20% of the parents. As a vice principal many years ago, one of the things that I used to do when I got a referral that would be sent down to me, a discipline referral, is I would look at the referral and I wasn't concerned about the kid's name that was on the referral. I was more worried about who the parent was that I was going to have to deal with. Think about that for a minute. I would almost be rethinking how I was going to discipline that kid based upon who the parent was. I'm sitting here in this chair in my in my office and I'm I'm willing to admit that to you. I am willing to admit that I would reconsider discipline based upon who the parent was of the kid that was being disciplined. Have you ever done that as a teacher? Have you ever done that as an administrator? Those are the things that we need to talk about. Why are we so fearful of those parents? Because they have a big mouth? One of the things I'll share, again, is that the only thing we have to overcome in dealing with the irate is the fear of being yelled at. 
and you have to evaluate where that fear comes from. You have to take a look at where the fear comes from. That fear probably comes from an imprint that you got from your childhood. Going back to this fear of having our own parents yell at us. And some young teachers who have only been in the field for a few years, they can begin to get shoved around so bad because parents come into the school Okay, and they start talking to them like they're a three-year-old and they can make that teacher feel like a three-year-old. We all know that parents are the ones that are paying the taxes in the town. We all know it as educators. But no one deserves to be abused, certainly not a teacher who is providing a service for the children in the town and that is to educate them, to build a relationship with them, to teach them some morals, some character, and certainly the three R's of respect and responsibility and help them learn how to deal with relationships as they grow older. But again, we have parents who have matured physically but not emotionally, and they come in and they give us a hard time. No one talks about this stuff. Everyone is aware of it, but no one has a conversation about it. And no and no one certainly wants to do a whole lot about it except complain. And I think it's time that we took a step back and said, what can we do? And it's almost as if we have to take back the surrendered ground that we've allowed in our schools and in, in our culture, when it comes down to this idea of respect and responsibility. The next one that we have there is everybody knows that no one has self-control. And I just don't mean, you know, kids in school and so on. I mean, if you're taking a real good look at the condition of society... Have you? One in four homes are in foreclosure right now. One in four. You know what that means? That some either your mortgage was too big for you, or maybe we could blame the banks. Or I don't even know if we can blame the banks anymore. Because in the final analysis, it was the buyer that made the decision. We all want something a little bit bigger and a little bit better. But what we forget is in order to get what's bigger and better, we have to have the money to do it. And you can never presume upon the future. And presuming upon the future means I'm going to take this mortgage, even though it's too big, and the banks going back several years were... We're doling out mortgages to just about anybody. And I'm going to presume that I'm going to make the money to be able to cover that mortgage down the road. Self-control teaches you have this amount of money, you, you work within your means. 
but everybody wants bigger and better. And to get bigger and better, the money has to be made to get it. Let's take a look at things like teenage obesity, diabetes, addiction, alcoholism. These are all evidences of a lack of self-control. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate with, with anyone who may be listening to this in terms of alcoholism being a disease or a problem with self-control. I'm sure that there's a – it's both. But the bottom line is even if I have diabetes – I know I have a disease. I still have to control what I eat in order to control the diabetes. There is a certain amount of responsibility that we all have. And we have that responsibility not only with our physical health, but with our emotional health. Because there's a tremendous amount of leftover bitterness in us as adults, either it could be our upbringing, it could be, again, the imprint that we got from our parents on how to cope and manage difficulties, and that could wreak havoc in our own families. We are all responsible for five things, thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, and motives. Thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, and motives. Our thoughts, our words, and our actions are under our control. We can control what we think. We can control what we say. And we can control how we act. There's an old Buddhist saying, and I hope I get it right. Words fitly spoken should be spoken Kindly, truthfully, and they should be necessary. And oftentimes we say things that are just unnecessary just because we want to say them. And sometimes we have to evaluate our motive for saying them. How do you help someone develop greater greater control or self-control? Well, how do you stop somebody from speeding? How do you stop somebody from speeding? You give them a ticket. The ticket is the consequence for the speeding. And that's the way you help someone develop self-control. Does someone have to have a heart attack before they quit smoking? That's a consequence. Does someone have to incur all manner of health problems before they quit eating? That's a control issue. And I know people eat and drink and do a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. But in the final analysis, we all are responsible for our own level of self-control. And right now we're sitting in a leaking boat and many of us are experiencing the consequences of a lack of self-control. 
That was one of my dad's big things. You got to control yourself. You have to have some control. You have to do things that you don't like. He was also big on consistency. And he was also big on adjustment. And over the years when I was, you know, playing sports in high school and in college, I I learned the benefit of certain behaviors. Consistency was one of them. You do the same things, you develop the same habits, you work to develop principles in your life and standards in your life. Now, if the standards are off base and if they're wrong and they're offensive, then you have to make adjustments. We will always determine the adjustments that we have to make in our life once we, as we get older and we enter into a relationship. Because then we're going to have to evaluate whether or not the relationship is worth the adjustment. And we need to be confronted at certain points in that relationship and we need to be made aware because we all have blind spots where we think we're doing everything right and in reality certain things that we do may not be totally right. And someone else has to tell us. Sometimes it's a good friend. Sometimes it's our own children. Sometimes it's a spouse or a potential spouse, and they make you aware of certain things. Because even though every single thing that you do may appear right to you, may look right to you, it it may be just that, just to you, and there may be adjustments that you have to make in in certain behaviors. And that also is part of being a person who has self-control. Now, this next thing that everybody knows is something that is controversial. Nobody enjoys talking about it. Um, it's something that may maybe we use it far too often. Maybe we use it as an out for kids who are out of control and have behavior problems in school. Maybe we use it as an excuse for behavior that's out of control. Or maybe we use it as an excuse because we just don't flat out know how to discipline kids. But what I'm talking about here is the medicalizing of education. And in my years as an educator, what I found is that medication works. It works when we treat attention deficit disorder. It works when we treat oppositional defined disorder. It does help kids with these conditions. But if you talk to a therapist, what they will tell you is that medication in combination with therapy is the plan that nets the best results. 
Are you hearing me? There's a combination plan there. Usually the medication helps open the mind of the person to make them more more um, uh, in tune with the therapist and they can hear things better. And they also can control themselves better and can deal with the recommendations better. In schools, medication is relied on too heavily because that's all they that's all they want to use in terms of managing the behavior. If we use medication with effective discipline and solid discipline and effective consequences, we will have a better result. See, I'm not. I used to be somebody that would say, oh, no, forget about medication. Just deal with the discipline. Well, in reality, that may not work. Some kids do have organic problems that have to be dealt with medically, and I understand that. But I also believe that if we don't have an effective discipline plan in place, what will happen is that we will rely on the on the medication to do the job. I used to have parents that I spoke to whose kids were absolutely driving me crazy, and I'd say to them, you know, your son is driving me crazy here today, and their excuse would be he didn't take his pill. And you know, my response wanted to be, I didn't take mine either. Everything can't, medication can't be the only way out. And, you know, I, and I just have a, a very basic question. Where, where was ADD and ODD 40 years ago? Where, 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 I mean, I never heard of them. Either they, they didn't exist or they weren't invented yet, I guess. And the way I look at it is because the behavior of the kids, when kids acted up 40 years ago, they had other options for kids then. You could go to vocational school. You could join the service. You could get a, you could go to, uh, to an alternative school. You could go to an adult school. Or, you, you know, you could be asked to sign out and, and you'd get a, a general education diploma if your behavior was wreaking havoc on the school. Authority was respected by parents and by students. Often, what happens when we discover that disrespect is the norm and not the exception, which has happened in our schools, See, I, I like to use the example. Uh, what do you What do you do if one person burns the American flag? Well, you throw them in jail. That was the rule many years ago. What do you do if five thousand people burn the flag and the jails aren't big enough to hold them? You create a law that says freedom of speech. You can burn the flag. Same thing here. What happens when we discover that disrespect is the norm and not the exception? Sometimes we can create 
a condition to support the behavior. In other words, we, we, we give him a condition or her a condition because we can't control the behavior. We can't even manage the parent. So we end up with conditions to support the behavior. And then we, and then we medicalize or we, we put the kid on medication to help control it. Now he has a condition. Now it's a medical condition and that's the reason why he acts the way that he does. Sometimes if kids act up today, it's attributed to the fact that he doesn't take medication consistently. When in reality, he, he he's not being disciplined effectively. And sometimes when you look at effective discipline, if it's done right, it can control behavior. And that's something that we have to become more aware of. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that disrespect is pervasive in society. Everybody knows that no one has self-control. And everybody knows that we've medicalized education. Three things that we know that don't get discussed. And, you know, our schools are starting to come down around us. And we have to become more aware of what's happening as a society and as a culture. Ann Hendershock wrote a book, and she is a <clears throat> she's a social worker. She was a professor at the University of San Diego, and she now works at King's College in New York. The title of the book was The Politics of Deviance. And in that book, she stated that oftentimes parents who are having difficulty with their children are relieved to find out that it's a condition and it's not them. I remember watching House, one of my favorite TV shows years ago, not years ago, maybe three or four years ago, and there was a child that was being treated by House. And his behavior was rude, disrespectful, discourteous, out of control. No one on the the diagnostic team liked the kid. They didn't know what to do with him, and they found a P-shaped tumor in in a part of his brain that controls behavior and impulse control. And... When the mother found out that this tumor was located where it was, she was so relieved, so relieved that that this tumor was causing this horrible behavior that she was like, you mean it's not me? She was happy that her kid had a condition as opposed to um, her her not knowing how to discipline. They figure if you take the tumor out, everything's going to be fine. Well, they took the tumor out and everything wasn't fine and the kid ended up with another condition that they discovered further on down the road in the show and House went in to talk to the mother and his comment to her was, he has this condition. It wasn't the tumor that caused 
you know, the, the behavior. And he said, and oh, by the way, it is you who has produced this type of behavior in this kid. It's a pretty strong statement. And sometimes parents have to own that stuff. When they look at their own children and they discover that their behavior is out of control, they can't blame the system, they can't blame society, they can't blame the culture, they can't blame teachers. But over a period of time, they ended up not imposing effective consequences and the behavior, starting probably around the age of two or three or four, kids started to draw conclusions that they can get away with things. And as they got bigger and bigger, and by, by that I mean the kids got older and older, the behavior became out of control and they really didn't know what to do. So then it must be someone else's fault or it must be an organic problem. The responsibility lied with the parent, but they didn't want to admit it. Another thing that everybody knows is kids who have behavioral difficulties are not likable. Hear me on that. Kids who have behavioral difficulties are not likable. Now, we've been trained as educators and as professionals to make the statement, I like you, but I don't like your behavior. That's a lie. That's an outright lie. And if we're, we would just be honest with ourselves for just a moment, we would begin to admit that we don't like the kid. And realistically, we're all measured by our own behavior. I own my behavior. I, I am my behavior. Like being, but not my behavior? I don't think so. And I've talked to teachers about this, and I said, if there was a person that you had a problem with and came into the faculty room and you didn't like them, would you be able to make that statement? There are adults that we don't like because of their behavior. We don't want to be in their presence. We might be married to one, for, for, for all I know, about certain people, Kids are no different. The truth is, I really don't like you. And I have, and teachers have got to come clean with that real quick. Because kids pick up. They pick up on whether or not you like them or you don't. I used to have a youngster who was in one of my classes going back more than 30 years who was an absolute pain in the neck. The rest of the class didn't like him. And I used to go home at night just praying that he would take one day off. And one day he did take off. And he wasn't there in the morning. And I felt like I was going to have a great day. And he showed up later on in the day. So 
somewhere around 11 o'clock, and these kids always would come in right before lunchtime. And when I saw him, my shoulders slumped, my countenance changed, my expression changed, and he knew right then and there that I didn't like him. He knew it right then and there. Yet, I'm trained, I am trained at that point to say, I like you, but I don't like your behavior. How could I convince a kid of that when I have that type of look on my face when I see him? I certainly wasn't smiling. That's for sure. And we need to come clean with that. And and if we're having difficulty with a kid, we've got to do what's necessary to build a relationship with the kids that we like the least. Because that is what we're paid to do. The ones that, it's easy to have a relationship with a kid that we like, but we're not going to like every kid. And it's those kids that give us the most trouble that if we work on building a powerful relationship with them, their behavior will change. And I often tell teachers to practice something called a two-by-ten. Two minutes a day, ten days straight, have a conversation with a kid who you have the most trouble with like you would with your best friend or a good friend. And it's only a matter of, hey, how you doing? What's going on today? Good to see you. And that's it. And, you know, you do that for seven or eight days, around the eighth day, that kid is going to start looking to you for the conversation. And that's what you want. But don't go around thinking that I like the kid but don't like his behavior. In reality, you don't like the kid. And you do hope that he takes the next day off. The next thing that everybody knows that nobody talks about. Years ago, the only thing we ever wanted from a kid was for him to obey. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Now it's the last thing that we get. And those that sit in the ivory tower of theory and who are professors at colleges liken this word obedience to dog training. And in fact, to them, it's a dirty word. They want to attack education from a theoretical standpoint. But in reality, they may never have spent any time interacting in a classroom with a group of wild kids. See, they fear that they're going to destroy the creative side of a kid's brain by not allowing them to choose and by forcing obedience. They, when I used to do in-services and I would talk to teachers, the word obedient was a word that they liked the least. So I had to change it to compliance. And the definition of compliance is 
doing what you're told when you're told to do it with a good attitude. That's it. Wouldn't it be nice if you said to a kid in a classroom, sit down, and he sat down? We don't, we think that, you know, there's there's a choice that they have. And kids should be given choice, but they need to be obedient first. Then the choice comes. And sometimes we can develop obedience in a child by using choice to our advantage. Because we have to have a goal of what we want the kid to do. It can't be either get in your seat or get out. The end result has to be what we wanted. And that means the kid sat down. Now, we can't say to a kid, you can either get in your seat or I'm going to have to, or I'm going to put you in your seat because that would just get us in trouble. But with parents and young children, I want to tell you that the most important thing that you could ever remember is what your goal is at certain points. You want kids to eat dinner at the table and you relax the rule because it's too much of an effort to enforce the rule, that kid will begin to catch on real quick that you're giving in because you didn't have a goal of what you really wanted him to do. You wanted him to sit at the table. How are you going to get him to sit at the table? Well, it doesn't start when they're when they're seven or eight. It starts when they're like one or two, when they can get the idea that you want them to obey you. And you're going to make sure that they do obey because your goal is to make sure that they're doing what they're told, when they're told to do it with the right attitude. The next thing that we that we do that everybody knows is we lie to kids. You heard that right. We lie to kids. We lie to kids for the same reason that kids lie to us because now they're older and we don't want that the reaction. There are kids that are just not that smart. And I hate to break the news to the world tonight, but everybody's not going to college. Everybody is not going to college. The biggest mistake we made in education happened about 20 years ago when we started to eliminate vocational schools or created vocational schools that were just for the higher-functioning kids. And we created post-secondary programs where kids had to pay tuition in order to go, either to, either to go to uh, post-secondary school for beauty culture, auto mechanics, heating and air conditioning. My heating and air conditioning man right now 
is a student that I had when he was 14 years old, which is uh, around uh, 35 years ago. No, 30, 30 years ago, about 30 years ago. He's 44 now. He was a student that I had. He was a special ed student. I went into a child study team meeting for an annual review. His father was sitting there. I had a conversation with his dad. And I said to I said to the dad, what do you do for a living? He says, I do heating and air conditioning. The child study team walked in and said, we have Brian's IEP here. And I went over it and I said, his dad is doing heating and air conditioning. Can't we send him to vocational school for heating and air conditioning? The father agreed to it. The child study team liked the idea. The kid went through two years of vocational training, came out. He has his own business right now, and he's a millionaire. He has a million-dollar business. I don't know if he's a millionaire, and he's good at what he does because he had one of the best apprenticeship programs you could ever imagine. It was his father's business. Everybody isn't going to college. And everyone can't afford post-secondary training. The unemployment rate is what it is today because people who could be trained to do certain things can't afford the money to go to post-secondary. And it's the training they should have gotten when they were in high school. So what do we do? We lie to kids and we inflate their grades because we don't want to destroy their self-esteem. And I don't even know what self-esteem is. To be honest with you, I think kids feel good about themselves today for no apparent reason. And I'm going to, you know, I mean, are we going to get into the no kid gets left back? We know. No child left behind. Some kids need to be left behind. I get tired of teachers taking the blame for poor test scores and for kids not doing well. We get the blame for everything today. I was watching Neil Cavuto on Fox Television three years ago interviewing Jack LaLanne. And Neil Cavuto's statement to Jack LaLanne was, what are we going to do about the problem of childhood obesity and diabetes? And Jack's comment was, the first thing we have to do is get all that junk out of the schools. Excuse me, Jack. It's not my fault that these kids are overweight. I agree schools should provide healthy lunches. There's no doubt about it. But the bottom line, the bottom line is what's, what the child is being fed at home and what type of eating habits he's developing at home. Not whether or not the school is causing it, but what's, what's happening at home. We are not to blame for a kid's low test scores. Some kids are just not designed to go to college, but they have to have training in some type of vocational skill. And it can't be post-secondary because everyone can't afford post-secondary. So we let the kid know that he's doing great academically. And we give him a false sense of his academic ability. Truthfully, what will happen is someone is going to tell him one day 
that he is not that smart. Like the college he's going to try and get into in a few years. Few years. Then for sure everybody's going to know, including him. I mean, these are common sense items that are on the table in our society and in our culture. And we all are aware of them. They've been discussed many times, many, many times, but we're not taking enough action. I have a few more of these, and I'm going to have to do another show because I really want to continue this discussion and I don't want to rush through the last four that I have. You know, I think it's just that important. And I hope if you download this show or archive this show, because I have no listeners, and that's understandable because I haven't done a show in a long time, that you email me because I want to hear from you. And you can email me at proactive7 at verizon.net. And we can have a conversation about some of these things that everybody knows. Go to the website, www.bullyproofclassroom.com. Take a look at what's there. Get yourself involved in that graduate course. Go to www.thertc.net. Take the Bullyproof Classroom. Get yourself ready for the online professional development that's going to be coming. We have a job to do. I'm 58 years old right now. I want to work at this for another few years and see where I'm at. But I do believe that it takes a team to do it, and I want to pass this mantle to somebody else. Maybe it will be my kids. I don't know. But there are so many things that have gone on societally related to education and related to what is just absolutely the truth that people just don't want to address. Real quick, some things that everybody knows, disrespect is pervasive in society. No one has self-control. We've medicalized education. I like you but don't like your behavior is an absolute lie. We need. We absolutely have to get compliance from a kid first, and we've inflated kids' grades. No question about it. Listen, folks, I'm serious about this stuff. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's make a change. Let's be the change that we want to see in society and in our culture. Schools don't change on their own. It was delightful speaking to you folks again tonight. I hope those of you who archive it, okay, really take it seriously. Have a great night. I'll talk to you again next week. I'm going to try and do it at the same time. 
uh, and probably the same day. So we'll see you again next week. Right now, you're in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number to call in, 646-595-4965. Again, that number, 646-595-4965. I welcome your calls. Uh, The last show that we did was on a topic that I called Everybody Knows. Uh, And you can read this article on my website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com. It's there. It's a second or third article now. Uh, We had no listeners last week, live listeners anyway, but we did have over 1,200 archived listeners. So there is an interest in this topic that that we're talking about and that we're going to continue. I'm going to just recap a little bit as we move forward and uh, go over some of the things that everybody knows. We got about halfway through. Uh, and tonight it shouldn't take me that long to get through the the balance of these things. Uh, I just posted a video on YouTube. Uh, It's the top 25 anti-bullying tips for teachers and victims of bullying. Uh, If you have a chance, go see it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, It's something that um, everybody should know uh, and everybody should uh, act on. Uh, when they do take a look at the video, uh, it shares some really good tips that teachers and victims of bullying can use. <clears throat> so if you're having trouble in that area, as many people are today, I think it's important that you take a look at that. Um, just rehashing a little bit from last week and going over the first few things that we spoke about in terms of what everybody knows Um, the first thing that we spoke of was that disrespect is pervasive in society. And it is. There's no question about it. And I am very black and white 
I am kind of all or nothing. I am kind of consistent in how I deal with people and things and how I respect people and how I respect their their views and their thoughts. And it doesn't mean I have to like it. It just means that I'll respect it. And I expect to be respected for my thoughts as well. And I think what happens is is that often when someone has a view or a thought that's different than ours, we start to become confrontational because of the fact that they think differently. This is a problem that uh, sits with adults as well as with kids. And we don't leave enough space in any conversation for disagreement. And that's something that we have to we have to begin to take a look at. So disrespect is pervasive in society. People aren't always going to agree with us. And I used to tell parents when they came into my office all the time, I don't expect you to agree with me, but I do expect you to cooperate. And usually that helped. But realistically, disrespect is there. It's something that we don't give it we don't give enough thought to it. Second one, second thing that everybody knows is that no one has self-control. Kids don't have it and a lot of adults don't have it. We have homes in foreclosure. Everybody wants something bigger and better. We have a problem with childhood and teenage obesity, sugar diabetes, Many things that exhibit self the lack of self-control. Spending. Our government, for example, bailed everybody out because the banks didn't have self-control, only because the buyers didn't have self-control when they bought their house. Everybody knows it. And the only thing that's going to produce a nation of people with self-control is consequences. And unfortunately, many people are sitting in that leaking boat right now and are experiencing those consequences of a lack of self-control. Everybody knows that we've medicalized education. There was just a um, an article that was written that the, the Center for Disease Control is concerned about the number of kids that have been classified with attention deficit disorder. And the the amount of money that's spent on medication during the last few years is in excess of $9 billion. And by medication, I mean medication like Adderall, Ritalin, and um, other medications that are used to help kids with attention deficit disorder. And again, I'll say it, don't get me wrong, medication, if it helps, by all means. If you think it's going to help your son or daughter, I'm not a doctor, please go take it. Um, or don't take it. It's your decision. The bottom line is, as any therapist will tell you, medication along with therapy nets the best result. And I think medication along with effective discipline will net a good result when we work with kids in school. Part of the problem is we rely too heavily on the medication to try and control the kid and not imposing effective consequences. The next thing that everybody knows is the statement that I like you but I don't like your behavior is not true. Kids in school today have behavior that would curl your hair and they become very difficult to like. And we have to begin to use some good judgment when we deal with these kids 
because our attitude and our posture and how we speak to those kids will communicate to them that we don't like them. And kids will always pick up on that. And I know that many times, even when I was a teacher, I would go home and I would just pray that certain kids would take the next day off because they had driven me crazy. And when they did show up, how I addressed them, how I looked at them, and my posture when I spoke with them just absolutely communicated that I didn't like them, and kids know it. So I like you but don't like your behavior. Do yourself a favor. Try to try to determine the kid that gives you the most trouble and and just take a good look at how you talk to them, treat them, and how you act toward them versus how you treat and act toward the kid or the nicest kid in your class or the one that you like the most. And you'll see that there's a marked difference in your behavior. Everybody knows that one of the things that we wanted from a kid years ago was for him to obey. Now it's the last thing that we get. And obedience has become a word that people don't want to use. I guess it's too conservative. I don't know. I mean, I had to stop using it myself because teachers were complaining that it was likened to dog training. My point is, okay, I'll use compliance. It means the same thing, to do what you're told when you're told to do it with a good attitude. That's what we want. Wouldn't it be nice to say to a kid, sit down, and he sat down, instead of asking and getting to the point where you're almost begging him to listen to you? Everybody knows that we lie to kids. we lie to them. We don't tell them the truth. Sometimes we give them a false sense of their academic ability. And they believe that they're doing far better than what they actually are doing. By the way, there was an article that was, uh, there was a school district in uh, New Hampshire, the Wyndham School District, has just barred dodgeball from gym classes because they claim that it it's violent and it's exclusionary. Violent and exclusionary. I you know, and which I'm not buying at all. Uh it's a game. It, and when it's supervised and played correctly, it's a great game. The point is you have a lot of sports that could be considered violent in society. You have football. Let's take away the whole football uh, program. Lacrosse, field hockey, and even soccer at times can be considered violent when you consider the body contact that's involved. Exclusionary, as a matter of information, there are winners and there are losers. Kids lose at a game. Kids lose at a sport. Kids lose in in many different ways today. But the biggest loss that they will have is when someone gives them a clear view of their academic ability and someone tells them that they're not invited to a party or whatever the case may be because another person just chose not to. Kids will be excluded. Kids are going to lose. Okay, adults lose, and if, and if, and if it was a, a case of win-win all the way around, we wouldn't need the Super Bowl, we wouldn't need the World Series, and we certainly wouldn't need political elections. 
for tonight. One of the things that everybody knows, and I may have covered this last week, but I'm going to cover it again, is that excuses are built around circumstance and and which could be environmental or genetic. Crimes get committed all the time. And circumstance is always brought up. person may have had a tough upbringing or he was raised on the wrong side of the tracks. And somehow, some way, we've gotten to a point in this society and in our culture. And we have this idea of determinism. Determinism. And that's who we are. We can't change. We're determined by our genetics. We are influenced by our genetics. We're not determined. Our environment will influence us. It won't determine us. Because in reality, everybody has a choice that they can make in terms of their own behavior. And if we make poor choices, that's what it was. It was a poor choice. And I I do believe that if we provide enough excuses for anyone, they'll, they'll provide you with the evidence to support your belief. That's the self-fulfilling prophecy. I give you enough reasons not to do something based on your ability, you'll prov- you you won't do it. And we have teachers have been forced to excuse behavior by a dysfunctional system. And that's and that system has been shoehorned into education by this dysfunctional society. Every single time a crime gets committed, and I'll, I mean, I'll go back to the, uh, the the Christian Pittman case probably 10 years ago. 15-year-old boy, he was 13 at the time, is dating a young gal. He's living in North Carolina with his grandparents in a trailer. And his grandparents disapproved of him dating this cow. He gets so outraged that when they're taking their afternoon nap, he goes into the trailer with a shotgun, shoots them dead, takes the dog, puts it on a leash, puts the dog in a pickup truck, but before he decides to take off, he burns the trailer down. 13 years old. The defense attorney at the time said that the reason he did what he did was because of an adverse reaction that he may have had to Zoloft. The prosecuting attorney said, Zoloft's not on trial here. This kid is. And when he was 15 years old, he stood trial for murdering his grandparents. They tried to use circumstance as an excuse for his behavior. Now, do I want to see a third to 15-year-old kid go to jail? I don't think so. I really would not. I don't think it's going to do him that much good because they tried him as an adult. 
but I was concerned about the verdict, and I didn't want him to get off behind some type of medical issue or circumstance that he was involved with. Bottom line, he was found guilty. He's doing 30 years. They didn't allow the circumstance to enter in. And I agree. I wish they could just find a better place to put the kid rather than jail. Now, whether he was in a juvenile facility or whether he was in doing hard time with some hard criminals, I don't know. The bottom line was he did it. The choice was his, and he did it. My name is Jim Burns. Right now you're in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number to call in, 646-595-4965. If you're listening, thank you. If, if, you're, if you're not listening and you happen to run across this, archive it and download it for yourself and take a good listen about some of the stuff that everybody knows but doesn't want to talk about and in most cases won't do anything about The next one, the next thing that everybody knows, parents need parenting. And I'm just going to go back to my own childhood, as I do very often, because I think I learned a lot from my childhood. I had a pretty good dad and a pretty good mom, and they made their mistakes. And, of course, the old line that everybody has from my generation, I'm a baby boomer, I'm 58 years old, and we all had this great line, which was, our parents did the best they could with what they knew. And that's true. They did the very best they could with the information that they had. And they raised us. And they brought us onto this earth, me and my two sisters. And in reality, they didn't have a clue as to what they were doing. And many adults were raised by parents who didn't know what they were doing. My dad, when his mother died, he was he was my age. He was 58 years old. And it was almost as if he lost some type of check valve or some type of of um, person that was that was really holding him accountable, and he ended up occasionally going off on benders, and he made an attempt to try and get away with a little bit more than he had before his mom died. He needed parenting, and he didn't even know it. And I think as adults, our job should be to work on developing a real solid relationship with our own parents because it's going to help us with our own children. Your parents, you know, weren't perfect, and I'm a parent, and I'm not perfect. I still probably need parenting. I had some great guys that came into my life that helped me as I had my own children. My mom, when her mother died, her wheels fell off. And her behavior changed. She needed parenting. 
And what do you do? What do you do, okay, with with a person when they're angry at their own parents? What do you do with them? See, the older your parents get, the more you should work to develop a stronger relationship with them. Because I'm going to tell you that the guilt that's associated from a strained relationship with your parents, when they die, is only going to affect one person, and that's you. It's not going to affect them because they're going to be in the ground, or they're going to be scattered. Their ashes will be scattered across an ocean or, or somewhere that they wanted them to be scattered, or they'll be in an urn sitting in your house. The only person a bad relationship with your parents affects is you. And as they grow older, you need to take, and I need to take, or I, I don't even have the, the chance anymore because my both my parents are dead, but thank God my relationship with both of them was very good when they did pass away. I talked to hundreds, if not thousands of parents in my office when I worked as a principal, and I used, I used to get into conversations with them about their own parents, and they would say to me, well, I don't talk to my parents. And I figured maybe they had a little spat or something like that. And I would say to them, how long haven't you spoken to your parents? And, and sometimes they would tell me, 10 years. 10 years you, you haven't spoken to your parents. What could, what could have possibly have happened that you don't talk to your parents for 10 years? It's only going to affect the way you raise your own children because you are going to become angry. You're going to have a sense of bitterness, and you are absolutely going to take that out on your own kids. And you won't know how to discipline your own kids. See, we have a built-in human resource that we can go to if we want to and if we, and, and if we took the time to even think about it. Our parents have a great deal of wisdom. And a good friend of mine once said to me, even bad parents do some things right. And that's what we have to be aware of. Now, sometimes parents can do some pretty, pretty, pretty bad things. And I mean bad stuff. And sometimes it's, it's just that hard. It's that hard to, to develop or redevelop or to have a relationship with them. Because I do know that people can forgive, but they never forget. And because we don't forget, we carry it around with us. And you have to find a place to put it, because if you don't, what will happen is it will eat away at you. It's not going to eat away at them because parents who have never taken a look at themselves truly, okay, they don't think that they did anything wrong. So that's our job now. See what you can do with the relationship that you have with your parents because if you're a parent, you need parenting. 
and they needed parenting as well, your own parents. The bottom line is they never went and got it. You take the steps, try and figure out what you need to do in order to be a better parent to your own children. Everybody knows that kids don't fear anything today. They really don't. And it's one of these things that we've just lost track of it. We can't even understand it. See, kids, when they're little, they have a healthy fear of their parents, a healthy fear of their parents. And if the parent is disciplining in anger, and maybe we can go back to the previous everybody knows, parents need parenting. A child will remember what happened to him. The social and emotional window to the brain closes around the age of five. When that happens, whatever conclusions that that child has, he's drawn by the age of five. And kids will go through something around the age of 10 that's called mental puberty. And mental puberty is when about 3% of their brain thinks like an adult. And that's when they lose their fear of disagreeing with their parents or having an argument with their parents. And that's when they really start to lose their fear. And if the child wasn't given a fair shake, they remember it. If they felt that mom or dad was unfair, disciplined in anger, and really didn't see life from their perspective at all, what will start to happen is you'll have a kid start to lose his fear of his parents as well as other adults. And truthfully, folks, that's one of the biggest reasons why we have such behavior problems today. True, kids don't fear anything. But that time period between birth and five years old is so important. It is so critical to develop a healthy relationship with that child because they remember. They remember what you did to them. Somewhere deep in that kid's soul and in that kid's heart is the remembrance of being unfairly treated. And there's a lot of things you can do to to redevelop a relationship with your kid. And, you know, even little kids. I ask parents sometimes, do you ever play with your kids? Do you ever play with them? Do you ever do anything with them? Play board games or, I mean, to play, you know, uh, anything, any game at all. Roll a ball on the floor. You know, be happy to see them. Wrap your arms around them. Uh, You know, anything that they want to play, do you play it? Or do you let them do things with you? 
Most times we don't want kids to do things with us because we want to get it done. And it's too much work to teach them how to do certain things. And kids want to spend time with us. You see, what happens is they want to spend time with us when they're young. They want to play with us. They want to help us. I mean, my, my, I remember my oldest daughter when she was three or four years old. I was painting a room. All she wanted to do was paint with me. And truthfully, you know, I didn't, I didn't allow her to do it. Try to get paint on the floor or all kinds of other stuff. How hard would it have been for me to give her a hunk of wood and a paintbrush and throw down a piece of plastic and let her paint that piece of wood? How hard would it have been? We have to involve ourselves with our kids if we are going to instill in them, not necessarily, not necessarily the fear but the respect that we want them to have for us as adults. And in schools today, the systemic discipline that gets used is really a slap on the wrist. It doesn't work. Because if the parent gets to a point where they fear their own kid, the kid will come home, bully the parent, and tell the, the parent to go into school because I wasn't wrong, somebody else was wrong, and they're picking on me. Now the parent's afraid of their own kid. And we have to be aware of that. See, there's, there's sometimes there's bad news we have to give even a three-year-old. And we're going to have to learn how to deal with tantrums, we're going to have to learn how to deal with them them uh, talking back to us. We're going to have to correct them for disrespect. We're going to have to correct them for irresponsibility. Because if we don't, all you are doing is promoting an adult, promoting that behavior that when that child becomes an adult, may not want to do chores, may not want to work, may have an entitlement mentality. Who knows what they will have, but the bottom, the bottom line is it comes from the seeds that were planted when they were much younger. The last thing that everybody knows, the very last thing, and this is a big one, that kids have lost their ability to get along and they are rapidly becoming adults who have matured physically but not mentally or emotionally. And you probably know some adults like this. They are immature. Immature. They look like adults. They walk like an adult. But the bottom line is they may not be able to hold a job. They may not be able to maintain a relationship 
with anyone. They may have what I call grandiose thoughts about life. And by that, I mean they're always looking for the easy way out. Somebody once said to me, you know, um, if you want to be a millionaire, the way you do it is you work 20 years and you have a a salary of $50,000 and you will have made a million dollars. Now, of course, you wouldn't have saved all of that money, but the bottom line is, Okay, people who don't have money saved and don't handle money wisely, they are adults who have matured physically but not emotionally. And the pro- and the problem comes in okay, when they're broke and they want to try and make a million at some project or at some type of um, endeavor or investment or whatever the case may be. We have been taught in this society to disagree, but with the wrong attitude. Kids have been taught to disagree, but with the wrong attitude. So don't disagree with me, or I'm not going to like you. And I probably have said this already, but the bottom line is, a disagreement doesn't mean that you and I have to be enemies. All it means is we don't see eye to eye on certain subjects. It is impossible, it is impossible to, for someone to grow physically and to to not get along in this world. You have to get along in the world. I used to tell my students all the time, there's three things, that, and I'm talking about my college students, there's three behaviors that we have to develop in a child. We have to teach kids how to be respectful, how to be responsible, and how to be compliant. Three things. Why were there only three things? Because, number one, respect deals with people. And there's something like 10 billion people on this planet So the chances are real good you're going to be around people your entire life. So you better learn how to get along. Number two, responsibility. We all have to work. We all have to hold a job. We all have to make money. We all have to support ourselves. We all have to do the necessary things for survival. So we have to be responsible. If we speed, we get a ticket. And the other thing is we all have to be compliant. And I shared this in the last show. Compliance just means you do what you're told when you're told to do it. Read the sign coming off of the New Jersey Turnpike. It says you've left the New Jersey Turnpike. Obey local speed laws. The idea that a a productive conflict could exist and two parties involved could leave enough space between them for a disagreement 
can be too tough for some people to imagine because we've got such big, fat egos and we don't want anyone to disagree with us and because that means you're an idiot and I'm the one that's right. And I go back to a story I told maybe in the a while ago where I had a, a young fellow who was 19 years old one time and I was talking to him about the construction of City Field, which is where the Mets play, and I said that the, the owner's the owner of the Mets, the Wilpon, spent all their money on that field, building that new stadium. And he, he looked at me and he went, no, with this face, like, what are you talking about, you jerk? I was like, wait a minute, okay, it's okay, man. Okay, You, you don't see it that way. Well, how do you see it? I mean, I wanted to get some information out of him. But all he knew was I was wrong and I was an idiot for making that statement. Win-win doesn't really exist. And it can't happen between because somebody always has to win and so somebody always has to lose. But compromise does. Compromise does exist doesn't mean I lost. It just means that I'm willing to see life from another person's perspective. Even in schools, teachers are taught not to talk too loud because someone may disagree with them. Information may get back to the principal. And once the information gets back to the principal, he'll put a muzzle on you and make sure that you can't say things about him or about the school or about her and about the school. And all you, all anyone was doing was just disagreeing. But see, when we disagree with the right attitude, we can disagree because what we offer is constructive suggestion. A disagreement doesn't have to turn into a fight, and that's what we have today. We have a bunch of adults who are fighting kids, and we have kids who don't know how to disagree with the right attitude. That line of political correctness that we all have to walk. I don't agree with everybody. I don't agree with everything. And I'll speak my mind, but I'll let you speak yours. We all don't have to be politically correct. Everybody knows that at some point in our life, we were a victim of a bully. Everybody knows. Somewhere, in, I know I was, but somewhere in our upbringing, we had a problem with somebody that sits with us to this day, that bothers us to this day. My, my person was Tommy. He was the biggest brute I ever dealt with, and he was three or four years older than me, and he was three or four years older than a lot of kids. And he did nothing but pick and punch and fight and throw you down on the ground and just was brutal. And don't think that I don't remember it. And there are people that have had that happen to them as well. I used to tell that story, and when I and when I told it, people in the audience would come up to me and say, I had so-and-so. I had another kid that, that used to call me names all the time. 
I had I had uh, one kid that used to steal my lunch, take my basketball, all kinds of different things. People walk with that, and they walk with it for a lifetime. And we still have a fear of man. And sometimes the man that we have the most fear of is the man with the most power. And power often determines how big that fear is going to be. Bullying, folks, is an intergenerational problem. And all we want it to do is go away. But it's not going to. It's not going to. And, and there's a big reason why it won't. Because there's about 20% of the kids who bully right now in our schools. About 20%. It's the 80-20 principle. It always was and it always will be. We spend 80% of our time dealing with 20% of the kids. And those, and you know, and we have these this 20%. We have this 20% in our schools today. And believe me, I am not that concerned about the 20% of the kids who bully right now. Because we're talking about kids from kindergarten through the 12th grade. We want it to stop. We want it, we, we want it to end, but it's not going to. I'm more concerned about the 20% of those kids that bully in our schools and our communities right now. More concerned about what they become as adults. Did you ever think of that? That a bully is a bully in school, and he picks on kids and wreaks havoc and says mean things and so on and so forth to other people. If he's not corrected, what is he going to become as an adult? Who will he wreak havoc on as an adult at a much higher level? and create much greater problems, either within the workforce, and I can't tell you the number right now, but it's something like $90 million, or nine, I think it's even billion dollars, have been spent in the last, uh, I think it's 10 years, dealing with workplace bullying, where people have to take time off the harassment suits and everything that goes on is all a result of, a, of an adult that was never corrected as a child for his behavior. And believe it or not, those adults get married, get into relationships, they, and they absolutely can wreak havoc in a family. And when they do, the model that, that their children get is that the way I get what I want is through fear and intimidation. And then you have another bully that's produced. Bullies can produce bullies. On another note, which is a whole other show, victims can produce bullies as well. 
we absolutely have to learn how to get along so much better within our culture, within our society. Because if we don't, if we don't, what will be what will absolutely start to happen is we what one what what a parent does in moderation, the children will do in excess. Yeah, bullying went on forty years ago. Was it as pronounced and in the news as much as it is now? No. Strictly because of the fact that it's gotten worse, so much worse. And adults don't know how to manage it. Kids don't know how to manage it. Schools don't know how to manage it. Society's losing control. And we have to put ourselves in a position to do just a few things, like disagreeing with the right attitude. We're cooperating even though we disagree. I love people. I love our society. I love where I live. I love what I do. And I just want to see us get into a position someday where we all will get along. And I know that's Pollyanna, but the bottom line is it would be a great world if we could. My name is Jim Burns. You've been listening to Blog Talk Radio. You have been in the Bullyproof Classroom. We just covered Everybody Knows. Next show is going to be on 25 anti-bullying tips that can be used for teachers and for victims. Another great show that's going to be coming up is a show called Playground Politics. Find out what kids learn about bullying on the playground and why we have to let them handle some of these problems on their own because if we don't, they're going to end up having a whole lot of trouble moving forward. It's been great being with you. Okay, You all have a great night. Thank mm-hmm. you.